Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is brought to you by Before, an incredible new self-care brand that just launched their first products, a line of purifying toothpastes. I'm obsessive about my teeth and brush them usually three times a day, so I'm super excited to be using Before. It ticks off many boxes of what a good toothpaste should be. Their custom supermint flavor actually tastes really good, and the consistency is silky, and at the same time, it doesn't leak out of the tube, which is a total pet peeve of mine. It's also non-abrasive, so it doesn't destroy your tooth enamel. All the harmful ingredients have been replaced by clean alternatives, and their custom blend of fluoride and dentist-approved ingredients totally promotes optimal mouth health. Before also deeply cares about our planet. Their tubes are made from 100% recyclable plant-based sugarcane and creates 50% less carbon footprint than traditional toothpaste tubes. As you all can tell from the show, I'm a huge fan of good, purposeful design, and let me tell you, the design and color palette of these are beautiful. The tube stands upright on your counter and makes your bathroom look minimal and chic. Visit their website, before.com, and enter the code CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T, to receive a free tube with purchase. I'm a huge fan of what they stand for. You won't be sorry, and your teeth and the planet will thank you. As a number of you know, I'm also a certified sound therapy practitioner and founder of Oto Healing, a sound therapy studio and practice. Sound has been a healing modality through many cultures for thousands of years. Oto's approach to sound is rooted in both art and science, the art being the history of sound, the science being quantum physics, biology, brainwave states, and more. All listeners of the show get 15% off their first private one-hour session. Visit otohealing.com to book yours now. Sarah Harowitz is one smart and witty woman. She's also a wordsmith at heart a longtime editor of publications such as the Huffington Post, Sad Mag, and Monte Cristo magazine. By day, she's the director of content at Vitruvi, where she led the creation of their in-house print and digital publication, Our Natural Habitat. By night, she's a literary agent at Westwood Creative Artists. It's a recent side gig she landed, specializing in narrative nonfiction authors and helping bring their ideas to life. She grew up in the suburbs of Richmond, a quiet and bookish young girl with two older brothers. Her father is an intellectual and a businessman, her mother a primary school teacher. During her teens, in addition to her love for books, dance was her main extracurricular. Ballet, contemporary, jazz, and hip-hop. Sarah applied to Toronto Metropolitan University for their journalism program, where she found her groove in magazines and editing. After Toronto, she returned home as a freelancer, until landing her first job at the Huffington Post, officially launching her career as an editor. In 2022, Sarah spent some of the summer in London, taking her certificate in publishing through Columbia at Oxford University. In this conversation, we talk about the natural way she found herself in journalism, what viral content was like when she first started as an editor, and how she's seen it evolve over the years, the HuffPo being on the front line for how news was produced for a younger audience, what makes a good journalist, the process of creating Our Natural Habitat and Vitruvi's refreshed branding, 
The State of Publishing Right Now, and Book Talk. What a Literary Agent Does, Traditional Publishing versus Self-Publishing, and much more. Please enjoy this exploration of life, journalism, and many other things with the incredible Sarah Harowitz. Sarah Harowitz, welcome to The Craft. Thank you. Yay, we did it. We did it. There we are. <laughs> we braved the rain and we're here. Yes, we did. We did. It's a, it's a Saturday morning. It's raining, but we're in this warm studio mm-hmm. and we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm good. I, uh, I feel rested today. I woke up feeling ready for the day, which I don't know, it's been a weird week of sleep, so I'm excited that I have energy today. Yes, I love it. I yeah. love it. So I was thinking about well, you and I had also chatted about this, where we met. And we met in your Monte Cristo magazine days. Mm-hmm. And this is the the time of eventing and going to a lot of things. And I remember always seeing you at these events. And we would always just kind of say, hi, how's it going? But we didn't really know each other that much back then. Mm-hmm. And then you moved into my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when we started to have coffees and catch-ups and you know, throw around some ideas and thoughts. Yeah, we went for a croissant at that adorable little French bakery, which actually moved and is no longer in yes, our neighborhood. So, yes, but. it's like, I think it's on Broadway now. I'm actually going there today. Oh, for a meeting at 1.30. I'll let you know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back in time. Let's go back to young Sarah growing okay. up in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Tell me about life back then. Oh, I was painfully shy, like just clinging to my mom, didn't want to talk to anybody, really liked to just do my own thing. And I had friends, but I just, the friends I had, I was comfortable with, but I wasn't really good at meeting new people. And it really took a lot of years and a lot of sort of prodding from my parents to have me become the chattier version of myself that I am today. So um, yeah, it was a fun childhood though. My parents were great. My mom is one of like the most nurturing people I've ever met. My dad is very, um, very uh, intellectual and business minded and the sort of combination of her, you know, nurturing, caring qualities and his, not that he wasn't caring, but his also like counterbalance to that, I think was a a really nice upbringing. Mm -hmm. So your mom was a school teacher, Mm -hmm. primary school teacher. Mm -hmm. And yes, your dad was a was a consultant and, mm-hmm. and, and businessman. Do you see elements of yourself in, in both of them? Are you kind of a half and half kid in terms of traits and personality? I think so. I was actually chatting about this with a cousin uh, recently. And we were talking about how one of my brothers is more like my dad. My other brother is more like my mom in certain ways. And he was like, you're kind of in the middle. And I was like, thank you. I think I am too. <laughs> Not that it would be bad to be more like one or the other of them, but... Um, I do see a lot of like the, the caring qualities that I have coming from my mom and a lot of the sort of headstrong <laughs> qualities coming from my dad. Yeah, I could see, I could see that because I, I, if I reflect on the kinds of conversation, we have really fascinating conversations. And uh, yeah, if your dad's an intellectual, then I get where you get that from, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. And your two brothers are quite a bit older than you, mm-hmm. right? So there's a bit of a gap. And your parents got you a bunny, <laughs> didn't they, to help yes. you from lonely, to save you from loneliness? <laughs> my dad told me this somewhat recently because, yeah, my, my brothers are seven and nine years older than me. So um, 
in lots of ways were sort of more grown by the time I came around and, um, you know, they were never mean to me. They were great. They were never like bullying older brothers. They were always great with me, but we didn't like grow up together in that sense of playing at the same age. And they were just at a much different stage than me. Anyway. Yeah. So my dad told me somewhat recently that the reason that I had a bunny growing up was because they were worried that I would be lonely. And so a, why was it a bunny? I don't know. B like, I don't think I ever expressed interest in having a pet. They just one day were like, we're getting you a bunny. And I was like, uh, all right. You're like, do I have to take care of this? Like, is this <laughs> yeah. part of my chores now? Yeah. And then later they, when the bunny died, a couple of years later, they got a p- puppy, which I thought my dad wanted. I thought it was kind of like midlife crisis, needs dog in his life kind of thing. And again, my dad told me <laughs> recently, no, no, that was because we wanted someone around the house for you. <laughs> I was like, I had friends. I was doing fine, you guys. But yeah. I'm curious to know with the seven and nine year gap between your brothers, did it almost feel like you were an only child in a sense with that big gap and they're kind of doing their own thing? It only did when they were really sort of university age and they had moved out and I was still in the house and, you know, kind of mid high school or early high school at that point. Um, so no, I never, because they, they were around still. And again, they were really, really nice with me and great with me. And we still had a relationship. It wasn't like they, you know, ignored me. Um, so I never really felt like an only child and, um, yeah, I honestly never felt lonely. So I find it hilarious (laughs) that my parents were really, really worried about it. And were you really bookish as a child? Yes. I read a lot. Um, my, my grandmother, my dad's mom, every birthday for any of the grandkids would take each one on for like lunch and a shopping trip. And usually that meant, okay, I want to go to Toys R Us. I want to go to, you know, a sports store and get a new basketball or whatever it was. Um, and there was one year where I wanted to go to chapters and get books <laughs> and she was taken aback and I think delighted by it, but it was kind of funny. She was like, all the other kids want toys. Why do you want books? <laughs> yeah. And what kind of books were you drawn to as a child? Oh, I think a lot of fantasy. Um, I remember a book called Frindle loving, loving a book called Frindle that was about, a boy in a classroom who decides to rename a pen as something else. So he calls it Frindle. And it's this like kind of uprising of the class where they all start using the word Frindle instead of pen. That one really sticks out for me. Um, and there was a book called Feeling Sorry for Celia that my aunt, who's a librarian, recommended for me, which is probably when I was a bit older. But the whole book was written in letters back and forth between characters. Um, and that one sticks out for me as well. Mm, your aunt was a librarian. Mm-hmm. Did you ever ask her how the Dewey Decimal System was created? No, because okay. it still confuses me, and I don't. <laughs> I don't think I could even go there. To be honest, <laughs> I still don't get it. I know I don't get it either. And I think it's it's so bonkers that they made kids sign books out that way. It is bizarre. <laughs> Well, I'm sure it's much better with the technology that we have now, but yeah. But I do remember thinking that it was really cool that you had to, if you were signing out books, there was the card in there and you'd actually have to put the name and date. Yeah, that was That was cool. really, it's it's really fun to see who else has signed the book out, mm-hmm. even if you didn't know them. Mm-hmm. Um, it always gave you a sense that like you really were sharing this item with other people. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I felt. No, I think that's kind exactly of a bookish correct. child myself. Yeah. What did you like to read? Ooh, uh, I loved more of like the 
girly girl type of books. So I was reading a lot of Babysitter's Club. Oh, me too. That's a classic, yeah. The Saddle Club. I was super into mystery stuff too. So Nancy Drew Mm. and the Hardy Boys. And then once I got into, you know, more um, of a preteen age, someone had brought a B.C. Andrews book to school. Mm -hmm. And I started reading those, which I... I hid from my mom because <laughs> the type of stories in there of of love and incest and like all these weird things. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure my mom wouldn't want me reading this, but <laughs> it's so juicy. <laughs> Babysitter's Club is a great one. I definitely read those too. And um, the Sweet Valley High books. Oh, yes. Yeah. Sweet Valley High. <laughs> and then there were some random ones in between, but those were like the go-to series books mm-hmm. that, that I loved. Also... Um, R.L. Stein in Fear Street mm. and Christopher Pike when I was in my teens. Yeah. So a little bit more into horror. Spooky. Yeah, and spookiness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm dark. A dark teen. It was a dark <laughs> so teen. much angst. Yeah, so much angst. So much. Um, so your father was also on the board for the Dalai Lama Center. Mm-hmm. Um, and he met the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. Did he ever share with you what that felt like for him or like any interesting stories about about that interaction no I've seen the photo it's a it's a group photo um I really should sorry dad if you're listening I should have asked you more detail about that um I definitely will after this because I'm I'm curious but um I don't know a ton from the actual meeting okay we'll do a round two I'll I'll follow up with you okay (laughs) sounds good (laughs) um but let's go into you as a as a teen you were still really studio uh, studious but now you're starting to like really have fun and come out of your shell. So what was Sarah like in high school and what were you involved in? Oh, I, yeah, I was definitely a good student. Um, Thankfully for me, you know, I I tried hard, but I didn't have to like shut myself away for hours on end. Like I was still able to have quite a full social life and do all the teen things of, um, you know, drinking coolers in the park after dark and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I still read a lot, and I was also really into dance. I was a thought I was maybe going to be a dancer uh, after after school, so I did a dance was my main extracurricular activity. Ballet or contemporary? Kind of all of it. Ballet, okay. contemporary, jazz. Um, did a bit of hip hop. Wasn't very good at it. Um, yeah, it was very fun. My I kind of come from a family of dancers on my mom's side, so. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And do you still incorporate dance and movement into your life now? Not really. Um, it's hard. It's hard as an adult to find a place where you can do it sort of recreationally. It's not like oh, I used to play soccer. I joined a rec league. Like there isn't really that for dance. Um, I mean, there are dropping classes, but I haven't found a place that's at the sort of level that I want it to be where it's like, I'm obviously not pro. I'm never good enough to be pro, but it's beyond sort of a beginner, um, place. So it's harder to find as an adult, but, um, it's definitely still just like in my body. I think. Mm, Yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, you're so tall and you've got really great (laughs) posture. So (laughs) yeah, you do have a dancer's body actually. (laughs) We don't talk about how tall I am. Strike that from the record. (laughs) Okay. And so after high school, you went to Ryerson. But my question before that was, did you always know that you wanted to end up as a writer and potentially in publishing later down the line? Is it something that, yeah, you just had in you from a young age? Or did you just sort of like fall into it? Yeah, I 
I knew I liked reading. I knew I liked writing. But even, you know, midway through high school, I didn't really know where that left me, you know, as far as what what could that look like in actuality as an as a working person. Um, and I remember being at a family event and some, I think, like great uncle who I, Uncle Sam, maybe I want to say, um, <laughs> I was telling this to him kind of. And he said, oh, have you thought about journalism? I was like, I don't even know what journalism is. <laughs> um, but I started looking into it and got an internship at my local newspaper in Richmond and did a couple stories for them. And I was like, oh, I think I kind of like this. And then from there, applied to uh, formerly called Ryerson University, now called Toronto Metropolitan University um, for their journalism program. And uh, yeah, got in. So it was really once I was in the program that I, I knew I liked writing again, but it was in the program that I kind of found my home in magazine and in editing and in really being sort of the shaper of the story more than needing to necessarily like write the story. Mm, Okay. And you graduated with honors. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And you had the full university experience out in Toronto. Yeah. Ryerson or sorry, Toronto Metropolitan is a, is a funny university in that it's, it's right downtown Toronto. So there is a small campus, but it's just kind of in and amongst the city, really close to Dundas Square. So really in the the heart of all the kind of hullabaloo around there. So it wasn't sort of your traditional campus experience where you're insular and there's, you know, all these things going on on campus with that. Um, that said, I really like the experience that I had because I just got to be 18 and living on my own in Toronto and grow up in a really unique way in that sense. So I'd go visit my friends who were at the sort of more um, traditional campus experience schools, but I actually really liked being in the, in the heart of the city and having that, having it that way. Mm. Yeah, that would actually be so cool because I went to UBC mm-hmm. and that university is like its own Literally, city. It's, yeah. yeah, it's in its, you know, at the, at the edge of a cliff, yeah. <laughs> you, you know. Um, so, yeah, it would, be, it would be fun to be young and sort of like running the city. You know? And we really felt like we ran the city. Yeah, I mean, it's I bet. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we knew nothing, but it really felt like we were just owning the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then after that, after university, you got your first job in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And what was that like when you got that first journalism job? How did you feel? I felt incredible. I mean, I had written, I had been published and paid for, for my writing before, but just sort of one-off things um and yeah I got uh, a part-time job as like a, an associate editor I think for a, a blog called she does the city which is still very much um alive and well today and yeah it was it was amazing to just feel like wow I'm doing it I'm 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 editing pieces I'm putting them on the web people are reading them I'm like part of the I'm part of the conversation so yeah it was it was huge and then you came back to Van. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And then continued to work for She Does She Does the City. Mm-hmm. Did I get that right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. But also doing a bunch of freelance. And then you finally were hired at HuffPo full time. Yes. Yes. The Huffington Post Canada had uh, a BC or a Vancouver office that was sort of the the BC hub for all the provincial news. Um, and I got a job there, which was 
a wild time just because that was like the it wasn't the golden age of the internet I don't know if there really was such thing actually but being part of a, a news site at a time when I really do think that the Huffington Post was sort of the front lines of um, how we consume and produce a lot of news for a younger audience. Um, so it was really cool to be part of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I remember reading it and um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a online publication before all the Buzzfeeds and everything else that mm-hmm. came out. Like they were the OG, they were like the Genesis. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying you were tasked with creating viral content mm-hmm. when you first started. <laughs> and so I'd love to know what viral content was like when you first started and how have you seen it change over the years? Mm, that's an interesting question. I mean, if you look up my author profile on <laughs> the Huffington Post, there's some hilarious stuff on there. There's one about like a truck carrying like uh, like a truck full of, of, I think it was beans or peas, like cans of peas to go to a grocer. Somehow the back opened and all the peas fell everywhere on the highway. And like that was a story that I wrote up because... Oh, the, all the puns you could do, and how funny is it that this like truck exploded with all these peas on the highway? Um, so like, that's a, tr- a real example of a piece of sort of viral content that we were like, that we have to put this up. People will read this, um, <laughs> which is I I recognize not not hard hitting journalism, um, but stuff like that did really well for us at the time. Um, or I remember. I had gone, I had seen, I think on Instagram or something that this girl for Halloween had, um, had dressed up like Miley Cyrus at a club and some, somehow I, I don't, I didn't even know her, but somehow I saw a photo of her and I was like, wow, she looks exactly like Miley Cyrus. This is hilarious. And I went to my boss and was like, I think we should just like get these photos and put it up and just be like, this Miley Cyrus lookalike lives in Vancouver. How funny is that? And she was like, Sarah, that's like absolutely insane. <laughs> like what a waste of time. And I was like, yeah, I mean, yes. But also like, I think it might perform kind of well. Um, and she was like, okay, just whatever, just do it. Um, so I did it and it went, you know, Vancouver wide viral. And <laughs> so stuff like that, where you're just like, you're just trying to tap into a moment and give people some entertainment. Yeah. Um, so viral content definitely wasn't the more journalistic side. It was more the lifestyle, culture, zeitgeisty stuff. Mm. And I guess it's still, it's still this, the same. I mean, there's just different types of it now, right? Like you've got the memes, you've got the dance TikToks. Like it's just, it seems like the category is just expanded. There's just more skews of viral content. Yeah. And I think even within that idea of viral content, I mean, something can go viral for a specific audience, so if I think about my time at Monte Cristo, the pieces that consistently, I mean, maybe maybe viral is not the word, um, but the pieces that did really well for us consistently were uh, local history and, mm. you know, things you didn't know about Vancouver, hidden parts of Vancouver, underground parts of Vancouver. Every time we published one of those, top performer. So that might not have, you know, nationwide appeal, but for a specific audience that piece became or those pieces became really important so um 
yeah, I think you can tap into a specific audience and have it be really perform well for, for them, even if it's not like a wide reaching topic. Right, right. So just knowing who your audience is and, totally. and writing for them mm-hmm. or yeah, sharing stories for them. Um, if, I'm really curious to know what you think makes a good journalist in your opinion. And I'd also love to know you as a journalist, what are your North Star values? I feel like they'll be the same. The two, the two answers are probably going to be the same for me. I think to be a good journalist, you one of the most important things is a, a true open mind in the sense that you can go in thinking you know the story, but if once you're there, the angle you thought, the, the narrative you had in your head isn't true, you can't hold on to that. You have to be able to follow the, this is going to sound cheesy, the truth as it were, but like you have to be able to pivot and go where that narrative is actually taking you. And I think that a lot of, not even necessarily journalists, but but writers can kind of get stuck in the vision they had for something. And it's, um, as an editor, I'm always like, just see where it takes you. And I think that's something that's really valuable. As far as being a journalist, I mean, of course, you you have to keep all those sort of standard ethics in mind, the things that I like learned in journalism school, you know, not misquoting people, um, really trying to be impartial, which I don't actually believe anybody can be fully impartial. We're all human at the end of the day. Everything that goes in an article, something's been left out, something's been included. Nothing is ever going to be fully impartial. But and you're biased. Your own 100%, biases. 100%. Yeah. And in ways that we don't even recognize, each of mm-hmm. us. So um, it's impossible to be actually impartial. But I think having that as something that we always still try to work towards is important. Um, and for myself, I mean... If I think about the values that matter to me, maybe more as like an editor when I'm treating a piece or editing a piece, I think I, I think this word is overused, but authenticity is huge. Like I can I can tell when someone's not being authentic in their work. Mm. And I feel this way when I read sometimes when I read books and sometimes when I'm editing, like there's something that's not quite being the true essence of of that person or that story, um, is that intuitive? Like, are there are there actual cues, or is that more of a feeling when you know something is not as authentic as it could be? I think it's a feeling, and yeah, I wish I could say that there were sort of telltale signs, but it's just it's in the reading of a work you can just tell, you know. Mm. Well, that's what makes you a good editor. Hopefully that, you have that feeling and, and you can tap into that. Hopefully. But yeah, I think, I think the ability to be sort of nimble with, with a piece of, of writing is really valuable. Um, yeah. I love the idea of, of you saying as an editor to writer, like be open-minded and, and go where it's, it's taking you. It, it makes a story or a piece seem more like a living thing. Which it is, ultimately, you you know, like you can, it it can happen at any point too. It can be, if you're going out interviewing someone, that can be where it happens. Or it can be in the actual writing where you start writing it and it just 
takes you somewhere else because ultimately it is kind of a living thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess so many things are. I mean, even when I think about all my my different podcast episodes, mm-hmm. I often have people who ask me, you know, what should I start with? What are your favorite ones? And I'm like, it's kind of like you're asking me to pick a favorite child. Like I can't pick one because every single one is it's it's a living being and it's its own universe. So I can't really pick one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Even like when you're doing a sound bath, do you go in thinking, OK, I know roughly what I'm going to do or it's just it's all just how it's, it feels then. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It depends on who's in the room, who's in front of me. I've never played a sound bath the same way. Mm-hmm. So you know, I don't know. I think it's really beautiful to sort of treat many things as if they're alive mm-hmm. and are dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any heroes in journalism? Oh. Or writing? Authors? Yes. I mean, authors that I admire the most, I would say, the, their work that I could read over and over again. Joan Didion, I mean, she's uh, not an uncommon uh, inspiration, but... I love everything she's ever written that I've read. Um, Deborah Levy, who is both a novelist and has written um, a sort of series of memoirs. Her writing is incredible. And um, Keith Lehman, who is uh, an American author um, and, again, has written fiction and nonfiction. Um, So those are three people who I feel like I consistently could read and and be inspired by. Their Mm. work, like, I read it and I'm just like, how did they... How did they do it? Yeah. Oh, just like that, that natural God given talent. Yeah. Or <laughs> maybe words. it's really hard work. I don't know, yeah. but it, yeah, either way, yeah. I'm thankful for it. I, I don't know. I, this just popped into my mind. So I want to, I want to ask you about it, but, um, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote this book and, oh my gosh, what is the, the, the name of it? Um, it's escaping my mind right now. But basically, she was talking uh, about a story or something that happened to her where she was saying that she had this idea for a book and she could not for the life of her, even though she had the idea, it just wasn't coming out right. And somewhere along the way, a few years later, she met another author. And basically, that author had the exact same story idea as she did. And, but she was able to write it and publish it, and I think it, it did really well. So what she was trying to say, I think the book is called Big Magic. Um, what she was trying to say is, I wonder if ideas are sometimes their own living thing, and they're in the ether, and you may be a vessel for it, or you may not be, and it, that exact idea in the ether will go to someone else, and they'll be the right vessel. Mm-hmm. I think that's so fascinating. It is. I mean, even think about the number of times that you or someone you know has been like, oh, there should be an app that does this. And then you look it up and it exists. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, that's more practical. But um, but yeah, I definitely think that there kind of are no new ideas. And it's Mm -hmm. more about, okay, what can I bring to an idea or a perspective that's different? Or the idea that the idea is never yours. Yeah. Yeah. That it already exists as its own self. Yeah. So anyways, I, I've always really loved that. So now you're the director of content for Vitruvi, which is a natural home scent brand. Mm-hmm. And you have also the led, led the creation of its print magazine, Natural Habitat, which mm-hmm. is really beautiful. I'd love to hear about or maybe take me through 
your own personal creative process when you're building out the magazine? Mm-hmm. It was really, really rewarding because I'd worked on countless print magazines before. I'd interned at magazines, obviously spent four years at Monte Cristo, um, also edited a, a local magazine called Sad Mag. Like I'd, I'd put together and been part of and been the editor of a lot of magazines, but with Natural Habitat, it didn't exist before. So it wasn't like we had a template to follow or, um, you know, design standards or anything. We could just dream it up the way that we wanted it to be. So it was a really, really fun process to work with our in-house designers and just be like, what do we want to do with this thing? And I think that element of play is really clear in the final product. There's just, there's color, there's text treatment there's just like this element of um of whimsy almost that I I really love but it's still grounded and it's still beautiful it's still like a keepsake item it's not chaotic it's just um it's wide ranging so yeah it was really fun that's sort of on the design side that was that was really great and then um similarly with the content or the written content it was just sort of sky high. What do we want this to look like? And our tagline for the magazine is exploring ways that we can feel at home in our bodies, in our spaces and in our world. So looking at those sort of three buckets as our um, buckets to fill as our sort of mission, it was really cool to explore what does that mean and how can we kind of push those boundaries of, of what each of those things mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I still have my, mm-hmm. the one that you sent me, um, and I think it's the first issue. Mm-hmm. And I still have it. It really is beautiful. But also the writing and the content in it is really rich. Yes. It's yes. not viral content. <laughs> <laughs> it's not viral content. Yeah, no. it's really intelligent. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And that, again, was was intentional. It was how can we be playful? And yes, we are a, mag- a magazine that is you know, essentially for a brand at the end of the day. But my vision for it was always, yes, product is a part of it. Yes, Vitruvi is ultimately the voice behind this magazine. But we are going beyond that in the sense that what does the Vitruvi customer care about in the world beyond just Vitruvi product? So, um, yeah, there's everything from Sarah, who was... Uh, a survivor of the Nexium cults wrote a piece on coming back to her own body, which was obviously in the body section, to um, a reading list that that someone wrote and pairing Vitruvi scents with different books. I love that. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, so good. To a piece on we went to the the factory in Los Angeles of Citizens of Humanity, which is one of the most like um, sustainable denim companies I think ever. So, and that was in the world section. So yeah, it was, it was really nice to expand what content could be for a brand, I think. Mm. What was, uh, I, I guess, who wrote the piece for the Citizens of Humanity? I wrote what? that one. Oh, you wrote that mm-hmm. one. So what was it like? So you went. Yeah. I mean, they have an incredible operation in Los Angeles, which is very cool. I feel like most, I mean, most clothing in general we hear is made made not necessarily in North America, but especially denim, I don't think a lot of it is made in North America. And they have 
a really state-of-the-art facility and they employ obviously a lot of local people and they were doing all these cool things with um you know stone washing but the stones are reusable as opposed to just like taking stones from the earth um, and using less water in their wash cycles and um, they had a whole recycling program for uh, fabric that couldn't be used for denim that would go and be sent to a company that would turn it into filler for yoga mats or all these things so they're really doing a lot for sustainability which as we know fashion is one of the worst uh, polluters so um, yeah it was very very cool to see. Mm, nice to be sent on those assignments mm-hmm. where you can dive deeper into something, mm-hmm. you know, and the ability to share that. So you guys also went through a rebrand mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I've been through one with the company before and that's like a long and arduous process. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you guys happy with how it turned out? And what, what did you feel like, why, what was the need to do it, to, to do the rebrand? Yeah. So our our co-founders, Sarah and Sean, you know, started the company super grassroots in their apartment and did everything themselves. And um, that sort of early stage design that we had for the company carried us through the first, I want to say, six years. And there came a point where they wanted to just give it a, a, a refresh and have it be a little more cohesive and really represent the sort of re-envisioned direction for the company which was really embodying air and the importance of air in your home so less on scent specifically and more as like scent as a way to shape the air in your home Mm. but also you know we just launched a humidifier so really we're really an air care company more than a scent company now anyway so the the rebrand was really inspired by that and by wanting to have some cohesion across product lines and and really bring some new excitement to this this path that we're on now hmm. yeah and that what a timely rebrand too and and rethinking like less scent and and more an air company um because of the popularity of like breath work and being able to breathe properly and what that does to your nervous system so mm-hmm. it really makes sense for for the times mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. love that and this summer you took your certificate in publishing mm-hmm. through columbia mm-hmm. and you did it at oxford for about a month mm-hmm. yeah yeah and uh, i'd love to know what are some of the more surprising things you learned about the publishing industry that you hadn't known before or hadn't considered before Oh, that's a good question. I feel like I didn't, I mean, I, everything was new and yet nothing was new in a way. (laughs) Um, I think that it was interesting to hear from a lot of people who are working in the industry right now. I mean, it was, it was doubly interesting because most of our lectures were from the UK. So I wasn't getting a necessarily a snapshot of the Canadian market, but of the UK market. But um, I think that it's a really interesting time to be in publishing because of the way that, A, the pandemic brought, you know, a huge boom for the market as far as people being stuck at home and reading a lot more. So there was this huge kind of spike in, in readers and in book sales. And um, it's kind of calmed down now that people can go out again and it's it's a, publishers are now trying to figure out how can we keep that momentum going. So I think it's an interesting time to be in publishing and just hearing from people 
throughout the industry, whether they were in marketing, whether they were in PR, whether they were in editorial, whether they were agents, uh, whether they were designers, just hearing kind of those similar sentiments of we're all really dedicated to this work, but we don't really know what's going to happen um, was was really interesting. People talked a lot about book talk as in like book TikTok, mm. um, which mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, make a book completely go viral (laughs) to use that term Mm -hmm. um even books that aren't new you know like um so that was talked about a lot which I thought was not surprising but just interesting how how much the industry is not relying on it because it's not you you can't predict what book will will take off but um it was interesting to hear how many people brought that up Mm. yeah book talk yeah. Yeah. And Twitter. This was pre before Elon Musk actually bought it, so I would actually be curious <laughs> next year if people are still suggesting that all the <laughs> publishing hopefuls go on Twitter or not. But uh <laughs> um, and a huge congratulations on taking a side gig as a literary agent now. Thank you. For Westwood Creative Artists. Yeah. Um for those who, of us who aren't sure what a literary literary agent does, can you maybe explain what that role is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm kind of the go-between between authors and editors at, at publishing houses. So I take authors on as clients and work with them on their book ideas, whether that's a, an idea and a proposal or a, a full-fledged manuscript. And then I sort of matchmake those with the, the editors that I think might be interested and, and have those, those books get sold and published by those by those publishing houses. Mm, And you're Mm -hmm. focusing on narrative nonfiction. Yes. It'll be, you know, because of my background in journalism, I think nonfiction makes sense for, for me to start, for Mm -hmm. me to start with. It's Mm -hmm. where I'll, you know, I have so many writers who I want to write books. So I'm (laughs) doing a lot of emailing saying, Hey, I I think you should write a book. Let's talk. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, I have a a question around publishing and self-publishing, like traditional versus self-publishing. Um, with the rise of Instagram poets and writers and artists over the last number of years, I've noticed that many of them have taken to self-publishing. And I'd love to talk about the differences, the pros and cons between that and traditional publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think self-publishing is a a great way to get your name out there. It's a great way also, you know, you you kind of own everything, right? Like you are doing it all yourself. So you're not giving any rights away essentially to, to the book. Um, you can do it on your own timeline. You know, it's, it's just, it's all done by you, which is I think mostly good. Obviously means a little more work for you as well. Probably means that you don't have an editor, probably means that you, you know, you don't have a publicity team. You don't have anyone sort of championing the book for you the same way that you would at a traditional publisher. So um, I think, you know, I think it's great to see the sort of democratization of the publishing industry. It's kind of the way, you know, there are blogs and there are are newspapers or magazines. So I think there's room for all of it. And uh, I think there is something really special still about being published by a publishing house and, and having that name behind you and those people behind you again on the marketing team, on the publicity team, on the editorial team. Um, but that said, I, I do think there's room for all of it. Mm. 
Yeah, you you just said the democratization mm -hmm. of publishing, and when you said that, um, something that comes to mind is there's this this artist that I follow on Instagram, and she does this really compelling photography, and then on top of the photography, she'll have um, like just one line, and it's like it just it's either if there's two people in the photo, it's like two lines of dialogue from for between each one of them, or if it's just one person in the photo, it's like a thought that they have and she's really blown up. Her name is Sarah Baba and uh, she just released a, a book of her art recently and she had a sliding scale of what people could pay. So you could pay anywhere from $60 to $300 and it was your choice. And I thought that was really, that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we're seeing more of that stuff. Um, in art especially, I think that's very cool because it has historically been such a high barrier to entry. I mean, I guess that's why you see a lot of artists offer sort of prints as well as the like the original artwork itself. But yeah, I think that's great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was great because, you know, if you couldn't, you know, afford the $300 coffee book, you still had a chance to have something beautiful that you really, really want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was, it was great. And probably we'll see more and more of that. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know how in advance works in traditional publishing. Cause I think I don't really understand it. And I'm wondering, probably a lot of people don't really understand how that works, but yeah. Mm -hmm. What's, what's the process behind how an advance works and what that means for an author and what it means for the publishing company? Yeah, so an advance is, is essentially an advance on your sales of the book. So you, as, as an author, you are entitled to a percentage of, of, of your book's sales for, you know, however many years, forever, basically, as long as it sells. <clears throat> so an advance is us, is the publisher saying, we believe in this that we're going to give you this much sort of upfront to buy the book, to have you go write the book if it's not written yet. And then once the book actually is launched and starts selling, you sort of make back quote unquote that advance in those sales. And then um, once you've earned back your advance, you start making royalties. I see. Okay. And what happens if the book undersells? Uh, what do you mean? What happens? Yeah. So what happens if the if the sales of the book don't reach the advance amount. I mean, the hope is that it will, even if it takes, you know, there's no timeline on that. Oh, right. You did mention that. I see. Yeah. Okay. So it's just whenever that happens. It could happen really quick. It could happen in a year. Oh, it could happen in two years. Got it. Okay. And okay. so that's also why the, there's always the sort of um, toss-up of, do I want a big advance up front, but then that big advance will take probably longer to earn back or do I want a smaller advance and then start earning royalties sooner? Mm. You know? So it's, it's gotcha. I mean, that's essentially what my job will be with the writers is right. getting them the best deal for what they want in okay. that sense. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. That clears up a lot of things, questions mm. I had in my head. So thank you. <laughs> um, is there a book that you often gift to others? Oh, well, there are two books I tell everybody to read, <laughs> um, which is one is, Keith Lehman, who I mentioned previously, but his memoir is called Heavy, and it is just, it's so well written, I, I can't, 
I can't even speak about it. It's just incredible. Um, it's about his experience growing up in the States in the South. And the other book that I tell everyone to read is Split Tooth by Tanya Tagak. She's a, a throat singer from Canada um, and wrote this incredible novel. And it is just, it's lyrical, it's poetic, it's gutting um, and so, so well-written um, which makes me almost angry that she's good at multiple things, but <laughs> but not angry, really, just <laughs> thankful. Yeah, we need those people in yeah, the world. Yeah, I'm just like, how are you good at everything? But, yeah. yeah, just a polymath. True. Yeah. Well, just a couple more questions. Um, this next question is, is there a literary character that you most identify with and why? Oh, my gosh. I actually don't know. I don't know if I have someone that sticks out. I spent so long reading memoir and, and nonfiction. It's only in the last couple years that I have really uh, found a love in literary fiction again. So I've read a lot of fiction the last couple of years, but I don't know if there's any character that that sticks out for me. I mean, I think... The thing that I like about reading is that I read about people and perspectives that aren't my own. So I'm not really seeking out um, characters or mindsets that are like mine. I really like getting someone else's voice in my head. So that's probably why no one comes to mind. I, I really sort of seek the alternative. I don't mm. want more of myself. Mm. <laughs> mm. That makes a lot of sense, too. When you think of the written word and what it's brought to your life personally and in your career, what comes to your mind and how do you feel? Oh, man. It is... I mean, writing, even though I don't do a ton of it anymore, it really is, really is a big part of how I make sense of the world. When something, or the sense of my life, like when something really impactful in one way or another has happened I do often write about it um I wrote an essay on like the a, a big separation I had uh with like a the most seminal like relationship I'd had um and I wrote an essay on my my name and what that name means to me as being it being inherited from from other people in my family so there are there are moments that feel like the only way I can understand them is through writing them down. Um, and in that process, kind of going back to what you're saying about, I don't know where that story is going to take me. The writing is kind of that. The writing is the therapy. The writing is the catharsis. The writing is the discovery of exploring whatever I need to explore. So that's one part of it. And then I think on the, on the, the consuming side, it, it really is a way for me it's, it's a meditation. It's, um, it's an escape. You know, I don't read a ton of books to like quote unquote learn. I really read to devour someone else's work and kind of what I was saying before, get their voice in my head, um, get out of my own head. So I think the written word has been truly invaluable for me throughout my life in some form or another. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's your, it's your 
mode of expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm not visual. Don't ask me to draw anything. <laughs> I can't, I can't paint. I can't, I can't do anything else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have one question actually before my, my final question, which is a new one that also just popped into my mind right now, but I was listening to, you know, the model, Emily Radajowski, mm-hmm. Radajowski. Um, she has a podcast called High Low. Mm-hmm. And she recently had a guest on who's a dear friend of hers, Sarah Hoover. And Sarah Hoover is someone who's been involved in the art world for a really long time. Young, I think they're both kind of in their early and mid-30s. And Sarah was a curator at the Gagosian for a really long time. And I find these women so fascinating because they had a really intelligent conversation. These women are really, really smart. They're also feminists. And, but they're also models and they are, um, they have their, you know, regular jobs as curators, but they're also authors and they are, you know, fashion icons. And it's, for me, I was like, oh, this is really cool seeing this sort of new wave of polymaths. And both of them have written um, books. Um, Emily's was her book of essays, My Body. And Sarah Hoover has one uh, that just dropped, I think, or is coming called The Motherload about um, a motherhood from a really truthful, truthful place, um, sort of removing the patriarchy from, from motherhood. And I just think it's really interesting having this sort of new wave of women who can do so many things and still be intellectual and still be authors and still be all these things. I'm wondering, have you read um, My Body? I haven't read My Body. I've read the essay... Uh, she had an essay that was published in, I think it was New York magazine. Mm-hmm. So I have read her essay, but I haven't read the full collection. Okay. Yeah. And your thoughts on, on the writing? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they're women. We've always been that way. We've always been able to do multiple things. And it's really great to see that it's, becoming less of a shock for someone to even as I before was like Taya Tagak she's good at everything but like (laughs) of course she is because who you don't have to just be good at one thing and you know there are so many people who um Sarah Polly is another example she's Mm. a a filmmaker incredible filmmaker wrote a book of essays that I read called Run Towards the Danger great book incredible Mm. like incredible writer um so yeah I think it's really exciting that we can have these people who are in the public eye more who are reminding us that we don't have to just be one thing. One thing, and yeah. I think we've always had that in us and it's more just mm-hmm. um, easy to forget sometimes. Right. Sarah Polly, wasn't she Anna Green Gables a really, really long time ago? She was, yeah, The Road to Avonlea. Right, Road she to was, Avonlea, yeah, child that's, actress. that's yeah. right, that's yeah. right. That's where I first saw her because yeah. I used to watch that show. Yeah, she, she writes about it in the, in the book. Oh, about being amazing, a child okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll have to pick that up. Mm-hmm. Well, my final question that I ask everyone, mm-hmm. with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Oh, powerful question. Do I have a powerful answer? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I think that, you know, with the platform and the influence that I have as an editor, as an agent, you know, in, in these positions, I, I recognize that I am in some ways 
a gatekeeper. I don't like that term, but I am in some ways a decision maker in whose story gets heard, in whose story we, you know, promote over others. Um, and I think the, the main mission of mine at the end of the day is to make sure that I am using that platform in a way that I think serves the greater good. And that means voices that aren't my own. That means voices that don't sound or look like me. Um, it's, it's really been my mission again as an, as an editor and, and will carry that to being an agent as well to make sure that I am responsible with that level of influence that I have. Um, because ultimately I, I think storytelling, the written word, like we were talking about, it's so important. It's so, um, crucial to not only like shaping our worldview, but helping us again, understand the world, um, make us feel less alone, whether that stories that are similar to us or not similar to us at all, no matter what you come away from reading a good book or an amazing essay and you feel different. And so, yeah, I really think what I want to leave behind is, or I want someone to be able to say like, yeah, she really used the little bit of tiny minuscule bit of influence that she had to propel the, the industry forward as far as who we're hearing and who we're reading and, and why. I love it. Well, I'm very excited for you Thanks. in all kinds of ways. Obviously, all the great work that you're you're doing with Vitruvi, but also this new side hustle that you have that you seem very passionate about. And I know you're going to be excellent, most excellent at it, and you're going to be supportive and compassionate, and whomever you work with is going to be really lucky. Great. Hey, May, you want to write a book? <laughs> <laughs> Let's chat. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for being here and for the coffee this morning. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and I look forward to the next time we have another chat over a croissant. We'll go to L'Atelier. Yes, we'll, please. We'll pay a visit to, to their new location <laughs> because we love the owner. He's great and we yeah. want him to be successful. <laughs> Maybe best croissants in the city. Do we say it? I don't know. Yeah, I, think he's, I yeah. think he's up there. Yeah. I think L'Atelier is up there. Well, so much love for you. You too. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was so fun. As always, thank you for being here and for listening. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page for show notes and links on wearethecraft.com. You can find the entire podcast archive here or explore more conversations with past guests on Spotify and Apple. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on these platforms, including YouTube, to get notified when new episodes drop. Any likes and shares on social media are deeply appreciated too. Sound and audio engineering for the show are by Andrew and Jay Bagaspis. All guest portraits and images are by Juno Kim. Appreciate you all and see you again soon. <laughs>